welcome to the anime podcast uh this week it's another uh episode where it's just the two of us uh the two co- might as well call ourselves the two co-hosts now james and myself um this week i've got the jitsi handle uh your dad owns a lav in the cow sorry your dad owns a lav in haymarket which is a reference to the fact uh that our topic for this week james conley his father owned a toilet in Haymarket, right around the corner from where James and I used to live. And James, hello, James. Hello. Um, you are Him Himbo Conley. Himbo Conley. Um, we also, <clears throat> before we moved into that place in um, in Grove Street, we also looked at a place on Orwell Street uh, that was unfurnished, and we were so taken with the the name. Uh, to live on Orwell Street, that we basically almost moved in without any furniture. And <laughs> I really, I still regret not moving in there because I would gladly have slept on a mattress on the floor to live on Orwell Street. <laughs> that was how fucking vain we were back then. And just and if you forget, we were you briefly stayed with me in my my flat, in the basement flat, on the very street that had Conley's dad's toilet. Yeah, so that's yeah. my claim to fame. Once <laughs> yeah. on the street, that Conley's dad had a toilet on, and the toilet was still there. Uh, yeah, no, it's still there. Yeah, it's still, I don't think they use it, but it's still there. Um, yeah. So for for people listening in, obviously you figured out, and we're going to be talking about James Conley. Now, for those who are listening or from Britain, who's now who are are now the majority of our listeners because of all the episodes we did in the UK, or from those in the US who are second most listened followers i suppose uh james conley was a marxist socialist trade unionist irish republican i think he's other things as well he's also a writer uh poet he actually wrote um short stories and poetry under pseudonyms he did so many different things Uh, he had a big mustache and he had an amazing mustache uh, and uh, had one of those very very well maintained oiled kind of receding hairlines which from from like from photos in the early 20th century, you might confuse for like a full head of hair, uh, but his anyway. We were we're kind of uh, tangenting. That's our kind of our topic. Uh, Conley is considered both the intellectual father of the Irish left, uh, one of the founding fathers of the Irish state, though he probably would very much disapprove of the Irish state, and we'll talk about that. Um, so yeah, um, this is a topic that we've been throwing around for a while it's very very hard to do these types of episodes because they are can be so broad an entire person's life uh he was 48 when he died when he was killed uh, executed in, in 1916 so it, it, it's hard to pick any one thing about him because there's a lot to talk about um i suppose what we might do is go into a brief thing which we haven't pre-planned but i'd love to hear james's view of it um james i don't Again, I can cut this out if you don't want me to keep it in, James. But you did a play, a comedy play, I suppose, um, in Dublin. I'm trying to remember the name of the theatre. What was the name of the theatre? Smock Alley. Ma- uh, Smock Alley, yeah. Yeah. Um, on Mr. Connolly, it was a satirical take on, satirical and surreal take on his life. Um, and you had to do a lot of research for that, I suppose, on a very personal level. It's always nice to start in a personal way. What a, what did you learn about Conley and all of that, and through performing as him, you played Conley in the play, that you liked the most? It could be a personal quirk, it could be whatever, just a simple thing. What was the most enjoyable thing you learned about Conley? 
Um, <clears throat> I don't know. It's kind of complicated because when you get into someone's mindset as as thoroughly as I did um, for that play, it's the only historical play that I've done. Um, it's the only you know. Usually, my stuff is based on some sort of historical quirk or research, but you know, this was the first time. And possibly by the looks of the the way that the theater industry is going, uh, thanks to COVID, the the only time um, that I ever played someone directly from history that wasn't just like you know a step on character like Woody Allen or something like that, or someone you know that you could, you know, because I've played Woody Allen and the you can hear what Woody Allen sounds like. It's a lot easier to get into his mindset and what he's like because there's plenty of film about him in it. There's plenty of books where James Conley, you have to pretty much um, look in between the gaps to, of what there was. And he was a, just a very human person, really. And I think what I liked about him and what I identified with most was that he was at the end of the day, even though he was this revolutionary and um, this huge um, intellectual figure, he was also just a bit of a dope and extremely cack-handed. Yeah, no, he had that kind of, um, I think tying into what you said, my funniest thing I remember about him was how uh, like unnaturally passionate he was about like everything. Everything was, I need to put my foot down on the, the accelerator. So for example, I think I told you the story before, he was living in the tenements in Dublin I think it was probably about 1912, but it could have been earlier. And this um, young woman, uh, or uh, I think it was a young woman, came into the, knocked on the door and said, Mr. Connolly, Mr. Connolly, um, my um, teenage child, 12-year-old girl has disappeared. Um, you know, can you, can you help? And without, like, you know, he's in the middle of dinner, he just drops everything and legs it out the door. And he disappears for like fucking five hours. And by the time he comes back, the girl had long since, like long since come back. She wasn't even probably very far away. And he was like, and 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 without a beat, she was like, oh, she, she's been found. That's great. Uh, you know, went back to his cold meal and then went to bed. Probably got an hour of sleep before having to head off to trade union organizing. But I just love the idea that this is somebody who is like, he doesn't have, there's no borders in his life or boundaries in his life. He just, legs it out the, the door at the mere thought of a, a young working class girl needing it being lost in the tenements of Dublin, you know, I think I've told you that story. And it says a lot about the type of person he was good and bad, you know, uh, like you said, he had a tendency to be cack handed in, in, in some ways. Well, I think my, my favorite one is the, um, cause he used to own a cobbler's on Mary street in Edinburgh. And apparently he was just the worst fucking cobbler that anyone had ever seen. Um, and it went out of business, um, because it only stayed afloat with people trying to be nice to him. Um, and then when they moved to Dublin, <clears throat> he was getting some work digging the canal, and he had like a hole in his shoe. He was like, oh, I'm going to fix my shoe. And his wife, Lily, is going, please do not fix your shoe. Just just deal with it. It'll be fine. He's like, no, no, I'm going to fix it. It'll be fine. And, of course, he tries to fix it and actually wrecks the shoe beyond repair. And so then the next day, he has to go to the... Um, to the canal with Lily's slippers tied to his the bottom of his the soles of his foot, 
Um, uh, R. Connolly. <laughs> so, <laughs> you fucking idiot. Uh, <laughs> but he was, you know, there was something very endearing about him in, in, a, in a, at the same time. Uh, I don't know why that is. It, I think probably the image of him that most people have is probably inaccurate, but because by the time he was involved in the rising, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Um, he had rickets. He 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 lived in poverty all of his life. He was very much vitamin deficient and uh, certainly deficient in sun. So he had rickets by that point. Um, not the best in health at any point in his life. Um, you know his his first job, as we'll go into in a sec, was was picking up horse shit off the streets of Edinburgh, and had had aspired to be like his dad, who owned a toilet, as we talked about. So yeah, I mean, he like you said, he was a very human figure, and I suppose. You know, that's the thing most people, when they read about him, find them, you know, uh, most attached to. Um, I suppose the best way to begin is to talk about why we kind of, kind of why we are still talking about Connolly 100 years, more than 100 years after he was uh, executed, and certainly more than 100 years after he was active in, in Ireland and Britain. Um, why is he still relevant, um, do you think, to people on the left anyway, or maybe just people in general? In Ireland, a hundred years later, what do you think? I think the main reason is that as soon as Connolly died, the there was a complete rush to uh, from the the right of Ireland's um, middle classes and aristocracy to to delegitimise him and to make him um, very different from what he was. And uh, as you see, how the because of all the good guys get shot in 1916 in one way or another. Uh, basically, you're left with all the melts of um, the 1916 that survived, like De Valera, who then go on to create the problems that you know Ireland's still suffering now. Uh, and it's completely the opposite of, uh, in many ways, what Connolly was hoping for. And so to make their position more legitimate, they have to subsume Connolly's into theirs. And so they pretty much strip his radical um, nature from the retelling of his life. Um, you know, like the next year, you know, in 1917, they start doing this. Um, and so Connolly is so important in in Ireland for for the reason of that. <clears throat> you get taught about him at school, but you don't really get the understanding of like how much of a socialist he was all the really good stuff is pretty much um, never talked about by RTE and the state, you know, where he says things like, there's no point of having an Irish Republic if you're still going to be, um, you know, suffering from landlords, because then you might as well just have the Union Jack flying over the, the place. Because, you know, he, I think he was the first person that really, uh, succinctly got down to the fact that Irish history has always been about landlords and that's what a lot of his um, theories are based on and that's very fucking much true with Ireland now uh, and if you can sort of take his character and take his um, legacy and use it for your own means as you know a lot of people still try and do now um, you can keep that radical element out and you know, keep people dumb to the to the facts of what it was really like, you know? No, absolutely. And I can almost, um, I think I will, um, summarize why he's still relevant in one of his quotes, because it's my favorite quote probably of any Irish thinker. 
And if we can just find it. Ah, here we go. Ireland without her people is nothing to me. And the man who is bubbling over with love and enthusiasm for Ireland and can yet pass unmoved through our streets and witness all the wrong and the suffering, the shame and the degradation wrought upon the people of Ireland, I wrought by Irishmen upon Irishmen and women without burning to end it, is in my opinion a fraud and a liar in his heart, no matter how he loves that combination of chem chemical elements which he's pleased to call Ireland. And really, I think that is unbelievably relevant now. It's certainly relevant 100 years ago when nationalist movement was around. He's relevant because his revolution, as you said, was never achieved, um, wasn't even attempted, really. Um, and, and we can go into why it wasn't. Uh, you kind of hinted at, to some degree, the, the second bananas that took over afterwards, after the, kind of the intellectuals were killed in 1916. But it was also maybe, to some degree, because the country was not prepared, was a combination of not prepared uh, and also culturally and religiously years away from even being able to understand some of the ideas he was talking about at the time. I mean, maybe that's a cop-out, but I think now why he's relevant is because pretty much everything he's talking about is still something that people are struggling for. He's, you know, in his, some of his early work, he's talking about, you know, 40 or 30 hour work week compared, you know, and he thought that was revolutionary. Today would be talking about ideas of UBI or trying to remove work, work altogether, or at least the type of work we're talking about. He certainly was in favor of the type of uh, all the benefits and all the type of um, kind of uh, healthcare that didn't exist at the time. He was calling for all these things, universal suffrage, years and years and years before anyone else was. Um, he's relevant because he makes, because he's a forceful, passionate speaker who you can't ignore. And the great irony of his life was that the way he died probably made him um, unignorable, I suppose. It's, couldn't avoid him. He's He stands above everything. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing that sort of makes him disfigured that um, the middle class is fear is because, you know, say like <clears throat> he was involved with the early Scottish Labour Party with Keir Hardy. Uh, and effectively, you know, he was this the sort of lad that got more radical the older that he got. Um, and so even though he hated anarchists, uh, he wasn't that far away from an anarchist position by, you know, the time of 1916. And given it another, like, you know, five, six years, I think he would have started to flip around. <laughs> and well, he was in, James, he was in the Wobblies. The Wobblies yeah. are, are right, like, not even adjacent. They're anarchists. Many of them were anarchists. Yeah, uh, but he, you know, he, not quickly, but he got to that point where he was like, look, um, politics happens in the streets. It doesn't happen in the voting booth. Um, and for, you know, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil at the moment, that's their worst fucking nightmare. You have to keep people in the voting booths and pretend that's the way that you um, steer de democracy. So someone like James Connolly and his ideas are a huge threat um, to them, and so that's why they have to consistently, like, play these weird ideological games where they um, have to promote the history of Ireland while completely um, pretending it is a shadow of itself. So they'll, you know, they'll do a speech about the the IRA attacks on the Black and Tans, um, but not mention you know, like 
the deaths or they'll try and say like oh well you know like the the british army had the reason for attacking civilians etc etc so um do you know what it is james it can sum up very simply they're the counter-revolution and the problem with the irish revolution was it died pretty quickly and the counter-revolution has been dominant for 100 years and they're the counter-revolution and they don't want people to really think about what the revolution was and the, those ideas because it would because of course they're the, now the establishment and those ideas would be attacking them if there was another you know exactly so that's why Connolly is important because you can just fucking pick up where he left off very easily yeah and he makes it very easy because he was fairly clear about who the enemy was and while he he was appalled at the idea of the british empire i think he called, once called it a piratical enterprise of butchers or something along those lines get away with words um he was very very clear that it was the irish capitalists irish men going after irish men and women that was the problem um i suppose we'll go back into the beginning in Connolly a bit um for those who are interested there's a couple of documentaries in the notes at the bottom of the podcast if you want to learn kind of in-depth stuff about his life um because we can't cover everything on this but we'll go a bit into where he came from since both of us um james is in james's case for most of his life lived in edinburgh old ricky and Connolly is was born in the cowgate uh in 1868 at the time known as little ireland for the most part about 23,000 or so irish catholics mostly had who had left fled really um ulster the northern province of ireland after the famine um and made their way into the industrial parts of scotland and in northern england and liverpool etc and his family settled in what was probably one of the worst of many um irish slums where he's born um and I suppose what we'd start with is, um, and James would know a bit about this, uh, why is it that his early life um, in such a slum, an Irish slum and a working class family in Edinburgh, uh, impacted his personality so greatly? Um, do you want to kind of hazard a guess on that? Like Edinburgh, when he was born, which is, what, 1868? you're in the victorian era and it is a fucking horrible place to live and especially the area that he lives in the cowgate the reason it's called the cowgate is because that used to be where <clears throat> the the gate to the city market was and they would open that up and then they would let the you know drive the cows through to the grass market where they would sell them and obviously uh that road would then just be absolutely covered in uh cow shit and horse manure uh, but Edinburgh is also built on plenty of hills as well. And uh, the Cowgate is between or is on two hills. And um, thinking about sanitary uh, conditions of the time, obviously, you know, literally shit rolls downhill. So it would have been a really horrible place to live in. And also um, something like the, the Burke and Hare murders were only 30 years before he was born and they would still hang quite heavy over um over that part of the city and be discussed quite a lot because um you know they were so scandalous and you know edinburgh was the, you know this like the second jewel basically apart from london and the mainland britain um where you've got these scientists that are you know making these new understandings of the human body but by doing so they're um 
you know, they're using the cadavers of the poor to get there. So you've got this very stratified city. You've got the old city, which is, you know, where Connolly was born. And it's very poor and it's very um, tough place to live. Um, you'd be living on next to no money. And then you cross the, the bridge in your new town and um, where Princess Street is, if you if you know Edinburgh a little bit. Um, and it's just like going to a completely different city. It's, you know, very sanitary. It's very looked after. Um, it's got a heavy police presence to some extent uh, when the police get there and they would just avoid somewhere like the the old town. Um, and you have people living in bridges, effectively, in Southbridge, which is in the Cowgate, um, which has these old um, uh, storage places inside the bridge that people ended up living in. Um, and the conditions were just unbelievable. Um, and I used to work in the vaults as a, as a tour guide on a, on a ghost tour. And, you know, part of it comes from the fact that, you know, you're in there at two o'clock in the morning telling ghost stories, but they do have this very, like, horrible presence about them. And it's because, you know, people lived very short, very horrible, um, difficult lives in these places. Uh, and so for Connolly to grow up in this ridiculous poverty, this unbelievable um, disparity between rich and poor, um, how would it not radicalize you if you're someone as sensitive as he was and someone as as bright and as articulate as he could be no i agree and and there is something very obvious about the slum irish slum of little ireland and above you george the fourth bridge with people chucking their rubbish and filth down on top of you and george the fourth bridge i think at the time was a shopping street it's, it is now anyway um but People would live there too, and some of the wealthy would have remained up on the upper levels anyway. So there's something very obvious about the lower class, if you be, if you if you understand it that way, literally being below the wealth who are throwing their shit down upon you. It doesn't take a, a genius to figure that out. And but the thing about Conley, I think maybe you didn't mention that's really important to mention is that really until God the nineties in our in in Scotland. There was hideous, like anti-Catholic tendencies within large amounts of the population. I mean, there was a reason why Little Ireland's formed all across Scotland, because it wasn't easy, or at least, or and certainly not advisable, to be living outside of those little slums. There's multiple kind of cases going into the 1870s of riots against uh, the Catholic communities that lived in the Lowlands, in particular, obviously. Um, and the burning of Catholic churches, the burning of Catholic homes. It was a very, very unwelcome place for Catholics. Now, that goes back into the Scottish Reformation. We don't need to go into that because we'll be here all day if we talked about that. But Conley's awareness of who he was and where his place in the world was, the British Empire, capital, all these things are just apparent. And as you said, to a, to a smart person, somebody who who eventually would educate himself and to, to learn multiple languages, to read the entire works of Shakespeare, though he never had the money to actually go to see Shakespeare. That's how poor he was. You know, this is, you know, apparent all around you. The inequalities, the horrors of life are just there for you to see. Um, and I think that's kind of a unique thing. I mean, the Edinburgh Irish population was very small relative to Glasgow, where they made up like more than half the population 
by the 1860s and 70s. But all these things are there. You know, if you're paying attention and if you're if you're somebody who has or is like Connolly, who has a passionate kind of bile for that type of inequality, it's it, the world will, will be your teacher. Um, and that's kind of really something that people don't really take into account is it, it, what Scotland taught him. You know, he was Scottish. He always called himself an Edinburgh man. But I think if he'd been born in Monaghan, which is where his parents were born, I don't think he would have had the same kind of way of thinking. It was it was a kind of cauldron of Edinburgh that did it to him. And also, I mean, yeah, as you were saying, you do get to see the worst and actually some of the best of the British Empire in Edinburgh. Slightly differently from the way that you'd seen it in London because of the way that London is so spread out, um, where Edinburgh is so tiny and built upon itself um, that, you know, you would be brushing up against the rich and poor uh, a lot more than you would be in London. Um, and you would probably, you know, be able to see into people's houses a lot easier uh, in certain places of the city uh, than you would do in London where they'd have their, um, you know, middle-class areas that would just be, there'd be no reason for a poor person to go there unless they were actually like a maid of some sort, you know? Yeah, I mean, Connolly got out of the tenements as quickly as he could. I mean, he was a carter for a while, literally carting horse shit uh, off the streets, which was obviously a much more common thing to see when there was lots of horses and uh, around, or at the cow market when there was lots of cows around. Um, but he, about 14, he, um, like many working-class kids in Britain, faked his age to join uh, the British Army. And it's believed that he served most of that period, I think he was in it for like seven years, six or seven years in um, Ireland. His very first time going to Ireland, where his parents were from, was serving in the army. And he was involved in what was known as the Land War, which was a basically a combination of or kind of coalition of small farmers and the poor, a very large, wealthy land, well, not landowners yet, big tenants, Catholic tenants in Ireland, came together to basically seek uh, better rights and eventually to buy the property from the Protestant land as a leash, which they eventually did. And, and he was involved in kind of putting down these various attempts at demonstrations. And again, this is another thing that kind of really radicalizes him in his youth and to such an extent that he pretty much hid that fact that he was in the British Army, that he'd served in that way for the rest of his life. It took years and years and years and years, decades for people to find out he'd done that. Um, now, again, this is um, doesn't take anything away from his credentials, I suppose, it's it's a, it's pretty normal thing for working class boys in Britain or in Ireland, for that matter, at that time to have to find work in the army. But uh, another thing that would have been kind of and was with him to the very moment he uh, almost the very moment he died was tenements. Um, tenements were the one continuing factor in his life from where he was born in the Cowgate to where he eventually ended up in Belvedere Place in, in, in Dublin. He pretty much lived in slums. Um, poverty was ever present in his life, inescapable part of his life in Edinburgh and Dublin and in New York even. Uh, what do you think poverty does to a revolutionary, to someone who believes in kind of the uh, in a kind of a revolutionary socialist ideas? Uh, most revolutionaries at most slumish, pardon the, the, the pun. In, in slums, they don't they don't live all their life in slums. Very few revolutionaries are actually working class. Connolly was 
you know, as working class as you can get. What do you think that does to somebody who, you know, believes in those ideas, the, the lived experience of poverty? Well, Connolly is kind of a rare case in, in a few aspects. And one of them was that he was like genuinely as poor as he made out to be. Uh, but also because of his um, his nature, he did find it very difficult to get the work that um, someone like him would get, uh, would be able to to do in his position in life, which meant he had a huge amount of free time, um, unlike you know his peers. So that meant he had loads of time, you know, to go to the library, and he was there because it was warm as well, and so. Um, he had the unique position of being piss poor, but, you know, could read. And he must have been able to read quite well by the time that, because um, I mean, he can't have been self-taught completely because he worked in a, he worked at a newspaper. And so he must have learned to read there. He went to school until he was like five or six or something. Or Yeah, I think his, his parents, maybe not his parents, but he pretty much got basic literacy by the time he, he left school, but he would have been self-taught from that moment onwards. Yeah. Um, so, you know, he could waste his day away in the library, and he apparently was just a completely ferocious reader. So he would just read basically everything that he could get his hand on, um, which would be history, science, um, sociological studies, um, you know, things like the Golden Bough, which is about... Um, mythology and magic um sort of seen from a, a sort of pseudoscience standpoint um so he was so well read that um that gave him a lot of tools to work with that uh, a lot of people like him actually wouldn't have access to not to say that they they needed them because you know there was plenty of other people that were articulating they formed their ideas in their own way but he had that eloquence that he could that he could use, um, and the structures to use that with as well. I think maybe the most important thing that reality of poverty and the intelligence and the sensitivity. He was a very sensitive person in many ways, in the sense that he felt all of it and other people's pain to, to an almost unbearable degree. Um, was that it gave him an awareness that. The type of prag pragmatic in quotation marks, the type of compromises made by the barons of labor who were even appearing there, by leaders of emerging labor parties, were unacceptable because it didn't go anywhere near far enough. Um, it was fine thing for someone from a bourgeois background to talk about socialism, um, but to agree to compromises that left people ex in exact same levels of poverty that he was experiencing day to day. So I think, if anything, he makes it really clear that if there's going to be change um, and change for the way the poor live, it, it has to come from people who experience that. It can't come from people like Keir Stammer, for example, or for that matter, by the, the leaders of the Irish Labour Party. I think John Kelly is the current leader or whatever, who love to claim that Conley founded their party, but Conley wouldn't want to get within fucking 50 feet of them now if he was alive um i think you need to have lived experience to, to understand and to arbit to fight for people uh in a similar position as you and i think it's sad because i think it it it's so much 
go gets in the way of working class socialists and revolutionaries from being the voices of their own class and lived experiences. Because I think Connolly could talk to people in a in a way in the tenements in Dublin or in, in Edinburgh when he lived there or in New York where he literally learned German and Italian to be able to, to unionize workers because he eventually moved to New York as well. I think you can't do that. You can't really make change unless you have skin in the game. You know that old phrase. Yeah, it should be said though that his his ability for languages weren't that great. Um, and I, I definitely feel his pain there, where he was a sort of person, because he was an early proponent of Esperanto. Uh, so when he was talking, he would just randomly um, substitute a, a phrase with a, a French phrase or a Spanish phrase, which is, you know, very outré. Um, so, uh, the... Basically Del Boy. <laughs> well, no, because, um, like... I think part of the reason that Connolly was so attractive as a person was because of his, he was very sincere, but not in an annoying way, which most sincere people are. He did have that veneer of irony, did have um, a very sharp tongue when he wanted to. Um, and so often, you know, you see someone that's sincere and it, it's synonymous with being a bit dopey. Um, but he 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 tread that ground well, where it was clear that he, you know, he did feel quite passionately and quite deeply um, about the um, the topics that he was discussing. You know, yeah. I mean, I think basically you're repeating what I said there, which is he had skin in the game. He had a reason to not only be passionate. But he had the ability to talk to people who were living in the same position he was. He had the ability to communicate with them because he was self-taught. I mean, that's kind of the thing is when you read about him, you kind of he becomes a kind of almost mythical figure in the sense that it's so rare that anyone comes out of that type of environment and has just the, the, the sheer will to do the, the things he did. And it was sheer will because he had lived three or four people's lives in one life, three normal people's lives anyway. Um, he's so many things he, he writes about in his time. I mean, he um, was a member of the International Workers of the World when he was in New York. He certainly subscribed to a, a form of syndicalism, um, as many did at the time, the one big union. He was an Irish Republican. He formed the Irish Republican Socialist Party in the 1890s, definitely believed in um, kind of left republicanism, as we call it today. Um, even when he was in New York, he was writing a, a, a newspaper called The Harp, um, but it's really his ability as an intellectual uh, that historians like myself, anyway, who, would still look to him for. Uh, probably the most famous is Labour in Irish History, which was the very, very first attempt, no one had ever done it before, to actually do a working class history, as in the history of the majority of the population at the time uh, of Ireland. And a lot of the stuff he began then are still being picked up today, uh, really, by the whole generations of historians now. Um, the most famous idea, I suppose, out of that was what's called Celtic communism, or what's been dubbed Celtic communism, which is one of his big ideas, which was that Ireland, and probably Scotland to some degree as well, having the type of clan culture, now it's called clans in Scotland, over here would have been called the Tua, um, basically a small kind of extended family unit uh, living on about 
I don't know, a couple of 400 acres, let's say, or 500 acres, um, but with a common culture, etc. Um, that the that the kind of communal holding of that land by the clan, by the Tua, constituted a, a kind of form of communism. Now, again, in quotation marks, communism. And he said this is this made Ireland and maybe parts of Scotland uh, better able to understand the type of radical ideas he 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 was talking about. Now, uh, without doing him too much disservice, uh, maybe you might explain, at least in the Scottish context, either why that's bullshit or why that's not bullshit. Um, it depends on what time of history that you're talking about, because he has got um, a point when it comes to that. And I, uh, the other thing as well is, <clears throat> you know, 100 years later, say the the research that has been done into bronze age ireland and scotland and then the the dark ages is way better than it was 100 years ago uh, and if you pick up any history book you know basically before uh the 1970s um they're fucking unreadable a lot of the time and usually um almost everything is wrong so in some ways, he would have been very limited by the research that he would have had access to. And I simply don't actually know his sources for these things um, because they weren't in everything that I've read hasn't really gone over them, um, per se. Uh, and I imagine that he wasn't part of that school of providing extensive footnotes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe some of it was just conclusions that he came to himself from. You know reading mythology or you know some historical stuff but he has got a point which is and say um and you know this is true in ireland as well of the idea of the king being tied to the land and there was definitely points in history where the king wasn't always hereditary and they were some sort of representative of the community as a whole and so you know, that's why they, they would put their foot into the rock that, uh, uh, um, Dumbarton, that's not Dumbarton, that's, um, I've forgotten where the rock is on the east coast of Scotland, but it's basically the, the predecessor to the stone, the stone of Scone, which again, you know, it's like, you know, you sit on the stone to represent that this is, you know, it's come from the earth that you are looking over. And the idea is that, you know, yeah, the king has riches, but they're actually representative of the riches of the community entirely from uh you know as long as you're not a slave anyway um and it is about pulling your resources together <clears throat> and having um more power in that sense the drawback to that does mean that you then end up like consistently fighting your neighbors uh which you know ireland continued to do uh right up until um the english took over um, and by quirk of fate, you know, Scotland didn't have that. It had to come together in a more coherent way because of um, Vikings and English um, incursions into into Alba. Well, we had those things too, but we decided, no, we're not going to come together. We're just going to keep fighting. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he, he does have an intellectual um, framework to be working from there, but also... What I would say is, for the purposes of propagandizing, you can pretty much take 
the the Brechtian route for this one, as far as I'm concerned, and just sort of fudge the facts a little bit to sell it to people, because it has got this like it is fucking romantic as hell to you know have this idea of you know Celtic communism and the idea it was like something like the Normans came in and um, destroyed that um, that way of living. And if you're selling the idea of like, oh, this is the way it used to be, that has an effect on people. And it, it can be a good way to start getting them into ideas that are, you know, that are shared and that we do think. So Brecht would say that you, you know, just fucking lie because that's what the other side do anyway. And they'll, you know, they twist the past nonstop like they do with Connolly, for instance, to fit their facts. So, you know, fight fire with fire in some sense. I mean, in an Irish context, the the Tua, let's say before the Normans come along and in the 12th century, the Tua pretty much functioned as as he talks about. I mean, he he eggs them, was put put, this is American phrase, putting a little shine on the ball, which was, I think it was a baseball thing, but basically egging the pudding, as we would say, or as Brits would say. Um, he did egg it a bit, but the idea of, of the land, the Tua, belonging to the clan, to the family, and that the chieftain would be married to the land, quite literally, sometimes they used to mimic humping lands in, in some parts of Ireland. Others, they used to symbolically marry a horse, because the, the horse was, um, it's believed one of the first gods of Ireland was a horse that came out of the sea and basically created the other gods. So there's a kind of there is something true to say that no one owned the land. There was no hereditary chieftains. Um, there was what's known as a derbfin, which was like a, a family, extended family, where the chieftains would be picked by popular vote um, every generation or so, um, and the land would be reordered every generation. There was no hereditary landowners, and that some that memory was still there even until the 1600s um, when when the Gaelic order finally collapsed. So he, he, he did have a point. I mean, by that point, by the 1600s, there were definitely aristocratic families like the O'Neills and the Butlers and the Fitzgeralds and the O'Donnells, etc. The point is, he had a point, and as you said, or maybe the most important point, there was enough there for him to have made that claim. It's A lot of historians and theorists have put out much stupider ideas uh, with a lot less evidence behind it. And, and it was much, and more importantly, it gave people a sense that, well, you know, the world was different in the past, and why can't it be different in the future? And that's something, you know, and he he wasn't a historian, he was a, what's the word, rhetorician? Yeah, he was, he, was, he was a socialist, and he was trying to make people aware that, A, the working class had had power in the past, and it could have power in the future. Um, so whatever the truth of it, it's, it's up for debate, it still is debated. It was a great way to get people to uh, uh, to understand a romantic and revolutionary idea well yeah exactly i mean you know someone like you know finn mccoo uh if i'm not i'm not sure how prevalent his stories would have been in ireland in the the early 1900s but you know if they if they were you've got that direct tie to history that you can then use and there is something very communal about the the fiona band in the stories that I've read anyway. Um, and so I'm sure they must have been fairly prevalent considering how many 
things of Irish political nature are named after <laughs> Irish James, James, for 20 years before Connolly was doing this stuff, it had infiltrated all of society because of Yates and the Gaelic League. So it was more, it was much better understood then than it is now by a long shot. So, yes. Well, I mean, I, this might be for a podcast for the other time, but is part of the reason then that Celtic ideology has been eroded over the past 80, 90 years is because of its radical nature. I'd say that the danger there is there that if people like the the establishment as it is now are pretty and ha and for the previous eighty years are pretty much a free state establishment. They're pretty much happy the way things are, and any anything that rocks the boat is dangerous. And if that's a form of republican nationalism, if it's a form of socialism, doesn't really matter. So they saw what happened before, which was that this, this cultural revolution happened. Where people were reading about Phil McCool, about the Fianna, about the two of the Danon, about all these individuals. Um, and Connolly was writing his book, etc. Um, and they saw the danger of what could follow. Again, remember, as we said earlier, it's the counter, -rev counter uh, revolution won ultimately, and they're still in power. And anything that threatens that has to be gone after. Um, so, yeah, I think probably that the pan Celticism has collapsed as much as uh, support for United Ireland has collapsed because they see it as a threat. Um, yeah, this is how we've got into the position now where uh, the line to attack Sinn Féin has got people now saying that um, the, the Simpsons meme page on Facebook is now radicalising people into the IRA. Um, so... The, the establishment is having a very normal time when it comes to this resurgence in sort of Celtic um, identity. Well, much like the old establishment back then, which was a party called the Irish Home Rule Party, was un unable to deal with it because it the more it doubled down on saying, ah, you're the IRA, the more people was like, what's the IRA? I'm interested. Let me learn more. You can't put a lid on it. And the more you try and point a finger and say it's wrong, much like your boy Trump proved calling people out and calling them this you know names and saying you're evil or whatever doesn't work uh, or at least it doesn't work after a certain point um i suppose we should finish up because again for those listening this is an enormous topic so please do look in the um the footnotes because you'll find a lot of interesting things um uh, to learn more about his life um connelly's biggest the thing that made him known the thing that made him famous really to outside of left-wing nerds um, was his end. Um, for those who don't know, James Connolly, um, after being involved in a fairly, uh, a fairly violent strike and lockout in Dublin in 1913, uh, basically became the leader of the labour movement in Dublin and began organising for an insurrection. He believed that the First World War, which was rich people sending poor, young poor men to die in their millions, which did happen, um, was the, probably the greatest betrayal of his principles uh, because the socialist movements of the time, the Labour movements, all supported it. The Labour Party in Britain supported it. The Socialist Party in France supported it. The Social Democratic Party in Germany supported it. Um, and he found that his traditional support, uh, bedfellows, his traditional um, allies, had betrayed his, his, his ideas. And he, so he increasingly started looking towards um, people like Lenin, who were, by that point, and isolation in Switzerland, and people like the 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 Fenians, the Irish Republican Brotherhood.
And uh, it's the big question. Um, he even is quoted of saying on his deathbed, the socialists will never understand why I did what I did. And it's the eternal question. Why did Connolly ultimately join with bourgeois, because they were very bourgeois nationalists, in uh, a failed, what ended up being a failed insurrection to seek an independent Ireland? You're an outsider, but you've certainly been here long enough to take a stab at why you think he did it. Um, because he was the only adult in the room, basically. Um, and I know that that's actually unfair, but he, like, when you read about the, the lead up to 1916 and all the events that are happening, it was done in such a fucking back arsed way. Um, he seemed like he was the only adult around uh, and he had to, to look after the rest of the, the leaders because they didn't really seem to have a great idea of what to do and why um, how to go about doing it. Uh, and so when you read about the things that are happening when he um, to the lead up of 1916, he seems to be the only real tactical thinker um, for you know for instance, why did they decide to to build trenches in St. Stephen's Green when you could just get up on the Shelbourne Hotel and then fuck billets into the into the green all day long? So that's the sort of thing that Conley was like, maybe don't do that. How about we, we do something more sensible? Uh, and so part of the reason that it was as successful as it was, even though it was a failure, but you know, it got as far as it did was because of Connolly and his um, his military tactics that he he brought into the um, into the affair. Well, he he kind of had formed the Irish Citizen Army during the strikes in 1913, and but once that was over, and the old leadership of the Union kind of didn't really want to know about the Irish Citizen Army, he took it over and began making it a kind of a very strong but small group of about three four hundred kind of militant socialist republicans and with even providing officerships for for women which was unheard of at that time and you're right he actually marched past he the, the irony of of saint stephen's green was he literally marched past with the citizen army and was like that would be a good building to occupy um because you have a clear view of the entire green and the very thing that they don't do when they actually go into the green he wasn't there in fairness at that time um conley provide you know somebody a friend of mine says that without Connolly, 1916 would have been a picnic basically that the leaders were so detached from military realities they had no experience any of them and how to have a run a military campaign or a rebellion that Connolly gave it the, the steel gave it the edge that it needed to go as long as it did and as you said it was ultimately unsuccessful um, but his occupation, you know, his kind of pioneering of urban guerrilla warfare predates 1916. In Workers' Republic, which was his newspaper, he was talking about that in 1914, about how if you were going to wage a guerrilla war, you'd have to have it in the cities and the countryside, and that the countryside, it's easier. There's a history of guerrilla war in Ireland going back to the 1500s. But in the urban areas, he said you could occupy big buildings pardon me, with thick walls, and you could use that to hold uh, basically fortresses in the middle of the cities. His problem, though, the one thing that he didn't see coming, which I think maybe is is a kind of the da most damning indictment of him that I'm going to give in this, was that he thought that they wouldn't shell the middle of the city. He thought that the Brits would have to storm the buildings, that they would never 
shell and destroy O'Connell Street, which is what they ultimately did, uh, because he thought they were capitalists and that they wouldn't want to destroy their property. Um, which, to say the least, is a bit short-sighted, and maybe says something about his 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 inability to understand um, some of the complexities of the complexities of the British Empire. Um, but I'd like to read something, actually, if I, if I have the chance, which is uh, Conley's last statement when he was um, when they eventually surrendered and, and he was in, uh, held separately from the other leaders in Dublin Castle. Um, his daughter Nora. Uh, went to see him the night before his execution and snuck out his last testament. And so I might want to read that since it is actually quite interesting. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just a segment of it. <clears throat> we went out to break the connection between this country and the British Empire and to, to establish an Irish Republic. We believed that the call we then issued to the people of Ireland was a nobler call in a holier cause than any call issued to them during this war, having any connection with this war indeed. We succeeded in proving that Irishmen are ready to die, endeavouring to win for Ireland those national rights which the British government has been asking them to die to win for Belgium. As long as that remains the case, the cause of Irish freedom is safe. Believing that the British government has no right in Ireland, never had any right in Ireland, and never can have any right in Ireland, the presence in, in any one generation of Irishmen of even a respectable minority, ready to, to die to affirm that truth, makes the government forever a usurpation and a crime against human per progress. I personally thank God that I've lived to see the day when thousands of Irish men and boys, and hundreds of Irish women and girls, were ready to affirm that truth and to attest it with their lives if needs be. James Connolly, Commandant, General, Dublin Division, Army of the Irish Republic. That was his last will and testament. Uh, for those that don't know, he was executed about 3.45 a.m. on the 12th of May, 1916, in the Stonebreakers' Yard of Kilmainham Jail, and became immortal to such an extent that two 30-year-old anarchists are talking about him 105 years later, 104 years later. Hmm. Um, so what do you think there? What is it that, uh, why, why, kind of, why is it that his legacy... Is his legacy just born of his of how he died of his martyrdom? Heart use a horrible phrase, or is there something more there? No, because it's definitely in his writings as well, um, because they're so accessible and even now they're very readable. And a lot of stuff from that time um, would be more difficult, um, even if at the time they would have been fairly readable. But his his stuff is so accessible, and there's a wit in his writing as well. And these belong quite nicely. So he sort of shows you how you can go around propagandizing, and you don't have to couch it in, you know, complicated um, Marxist language. Um, but you certainly don't treat your reader as, you know, they're an idiot. Um, so you know, in that sense, we take a lot from Connolly, where you know the podcast, we you know we just talked. We're basically treat the audience as we treat ourselves and talk to our level. There's no point dumbing down or trying to make us sound smarter than we are to try and impress people because this is a, I think it's a podcast in the shape of Connolly's work where we're discussing ideas and um, ed trying to educate people and ourselves at the same time. I think um, reclaiming his legacy is really important and that's a big chunk of the reason why I did the show that I did and hopefully we'll do it in some sort of form another time as well, is to bring that idea back into Ireland that 
it's the fucking streets is where all the politics happen and anyone that tells you differently is a is a gambine because um that's what connie believed and he fucking showed it time and time again and i think maybe to to sum it up lennon actually responded uh, i think around the same time after he was executed and said you know for anyone criticizing him for going in with people who in many ways were his exact opposites, you know, upper middle class bourgeois nationalists who were very conservative and remain conservative for the rest of the, up to the present day. He said that, you know, revolution change isn't made in a kind of cookie cutter form in a kind of jigsaw form. It's brought about by allying and doing things that are new and different and in the street, as you said. And I don't think you're gonna ever, there's never gonna be change or certainly not the type of change we would like to see by people only staying in their echo chambers uh, or only staying in people that they agree with 100%. So he was able to look at these people and say, yep, I disagree in many ways, but there's enough we agree on uh, and there's indeed enough to be achieved even if um, um, even if we're executed in the process, he said, you know, the, the what we have contributed will have a legacy. And to some degree, and they're not as much as I would have liked, um, he has had a legacy because we're fucking still talking about him 104 years later. Um, okay. Um, for those who would like to learn more, as I said before, there's uh, a lot of um, documents at the bottom of the podcast. So please do look at those. Uh, but we're going to have to finish up. We're going to say goodbye from myself, Alex. Goodbye. And goodbye from James. Which one, James Connolly or me? Ha ha ha. So funny. Good for, goodbye from you, Himbo Connolly. Uh, and it's a goodbye from him. <laughs>